Welcome to the Peace Catalyst podcast, where we share stories to inspire, uplift, and encourage you in your peacemaking journey. I'm Becca Tyvel, and I'm joining you all here from the Washington, D.C. area. And as always, I'm joined by my amazing co-host, Allie Bernison. I'm Allie, and I am with Peace Catalyst in Los Angeles, California. If you guys have been listening to the Peace Catalyst podcast, and if you enjoy it, please do us a favor and take some time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. That just really helps boost our visibility and encourages others to give us a listen. Yeah, thanks so much for doing that. Um, You know, it's been so cool to walk through all these different conversations and series on the podcast on um, just like so many amazing topics like Christian Muslim peace building and, you know, racial justice and reconciliation. And, um, you know, we just finished up our series on the beloved community. And um, what's so cool, I think, about this podcast is it's meant to just give you all as listeners an opportunity to hear from diverse um, peacemakers and people who are walking out this journey of shalom and seeking to become people who build shalom in their communities um, in very like practical ways, but also just like a space to learn and discuss ideas and be open to different, um, you know, ways of thinking about things that maybe we've never thought of before. So um, it's really cool to, yeah, get to share these conversations with you all. We really appreciate you listening to us and um, yeah, if you ever want to, you know, reach out to talk more, please don't hesitate to reach out to Allie or myself via email. You can find us on the Peace Catalyst website. We'd love to connect and talk more about some of these peace building conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, and speaking of how to connect about peace building and specifically how to build skills for that work, um, we have a really cool course coming up that is being led by our very own Peter Anderson. You would have heard his story last week on the podcast. Well, two weeks ago, but (laughs) on the last episode. So Peter's leading this course. It's going to be equipping you for skills to connect in conflict. And it's a six-session course that's going to go through understanding conflict through needs, trauma, power, narratives, Um, as well as some really like practical peacemaking processes. So if you're someone who's looking to grow in your peacemaking skills, definitely check that out on our website at peacecatalyst.org. It's called Connecting in Conflict. And I think that um, it's going to be a really amazing experience and resource for people to grow in their own peacemaking skills and journey. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I, feel like we can guarantee that it will be meaningful um, wherever you find yourself within that, um, on that journey. So we, uh, yes, we're very excited to plug that. And then we're also excited to get into today's episode because we are so honored to interview Lisa Sharon Harper today. Um, So from Ferguson to New York and from Germany and South Africa to Australia and Brazil, Lisa Sharon Harper leads trainings that increase clergy and community leaders' capacity to organize people of faith toward a just world. 
She's a prolific speaker, writer, and activist, the founder and president of Freedom Road U.S., a consulting group which is dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap in our nation by designing forums and experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and common action. She's the author of several books, including Evangelical Does Not Equal Republican or Democrat, and the critically acclaimed The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right, to name just a few. She is a a columnist at Sojourners Magazine and an Auburn Theological Seminary Senior Fellow. She's appeared on TV One, Fox News Online, NPR. Her writing's been featured in CNN Belief Blog, the National Civic Review, Sojourners, the Huffington Post, Relevant Magazine, and Essence Magazine. She writes extensively on shalom and governance, immigration reform, healthcare reform, poverty, racial and gender justice, climate change, and transformational civic engagement. She has earned her master's degree in human rights from Columbia University in New York City and served as Sojourner's chief church engagement officer. And there are probably so many more things we could say about Lisa Sharon Harper but we'll we'll leave you there with that um, very impressive bio. But um, yeah, I'm you'll hear in her voice she's incredibly humble and um, so so wise and intelligent. So we're we're just so excited to have this conversation. Yeah, it seriously is um, so incredible. It feels like such a gift that we get to spend time with her today and. Um, especially that we'll get to kind of talk with her about her new book, um, which is called Fortune, How Race Broke My Family and the World and How to Repair It All. Um, And I've read like most of this book. There's some parts I haven't gotten into yet, but it's incredible and um, would highly recommend if you're interested in kind of this concept of, you know, racism and the history of um, racial hierarchies in our country, our society, and even globally. Um, It's a really amazing account of, you know, Lisa going back into her own family's history and kind of looking at the ways that our country has um, experienced and been broken in this area. So I'll let her talk about the book itself, but I wanted to just share a quote um, from the book. It says, we are in troubled times. There is no way around it. We must wade in, face the realities and costs of the hierarchies of human belonging that we constructed in our nation's earliest years. We must face the cost and figure out how to pay it. And I think that is, um, it's a very sobering (laughs) concept, um, but it's very um, heartfelt and real. And I think we'll hear from Lisa's own experience of going through this um, work of retracing her own family's history and looking at some of the broader context of what was going on at the time. Um, and so we hope that you will gain a lot from this conversation and that it will um, prompt you towards further exploration of your own. And um, yeah, I hope we can enter this conversation just with curiosity and um yeah, and be inspired to, to dig deeper and, and search more on this topic.
Lisa, we're so honored um, and blessed really to have you with us today. So thank you for joining us um, for the Peace Catalyst podcast. I am so excited to be here, you guys. And I'll just say up front that I really love the work that Peace Catalyst does in the world. And it's important really important. And it actually is very close to my own heart because it's it's the kind of work that actually spurred my own development um, in my theology and my work in the public square. So so this is almost in some ways like coming home. That's mm-hmm. incredible. And you, you were friends with our late founder, Rick Love. Yes. Rick, it's, I love, love, loved, I still love Rick Love. <laughs> um, he, he was, he was an absolute peace catalyst, actually. And he came to us at Sojourners the first year that I was there and said, hey, you know, we want to start organizing people, organizing um, Christian and evangelical institutions to begin to push um, our churches to understand um, the international uh landscape and the implications of our faith on how we interact with that landscape, how we interact with public policy on a, on a global level. And I had already started something called Evangelicals for Justice, <laughs> like years, maybe two years before that. So I was a little suspect, I have to say. I was like, what? So, but because they focused really specifically globally, um, I was much more open and actually became one of the co-founders of Evangelicals for Peace. And it, it, was and still to some to some degree is in that it's a very loose coalition of people who worked together for about six or seven years to build this this table of institutions who move together in the global space who are evangelical institutions they are evangelical institutions so you know we were we were entering into a landscape that had really no infrastructure there was nobody who was coordinating to um, to move this message forward, lots of people operating in their own silos, lots of people, but no real major co- coordination in, in in the evangelical space until mm. Evangelicals for Peace, and and it was Rick Love who catalyzed that. Wow, it's incredible! It's such mm-hmm. an amazing like legacy that we get to um, benefit from and and learn from and live out. So mm-hmm. um, that's incredible. And we're so excited to talk about your new book, Fortune. Oh, um, wonderful. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, but we're wondering if, if first, if you could tell us a little bit more about what you do with your current organization, Freedom Road, um, and if you could maybe share the story behind the founding of that organization um, and what was the need that you observed um, that was calling you to Mm -hmm. establish that. Yeah. Well, we were, um, Freedom Road began um, about five years ago now, six years ago, 2017. Um, So five five years ago, we actually just crossed our five-year mark in November of last year. Mm. And we were like, wow. And and by actually August of last year, um, November was more of the official, like we are now an official LLC, but we really started in August of 2017. And we started in order to do something that we are still intent on doing, which is to shrink the gap between the narratives that we tell ourselves about ourselves and who we are and how we got here in America. And so um, we believe strongly that that gap is what um, 
it, that is the distance between us now and us actually realizing that more perfect union, um, mm -hmm. that the, the beloved community actually within our nation. Um, it is that gap. It's the gap that says to some people, maybe a third of people in America, that there was a time when we were great as a nation. And that time stretches back to the time when, um, when it was clear who ruled here. Um, I, I actually stood on the line at the Republican convention. And I only say this because that's, this is, this is the place where you'll find this narrative in, in its most pure form. Um, and I stood on the line at the Republican convention back in 2018 and, um, with, with nuns on the bus, <laughs> I was the first non-nun to ride on that bus. Um, we were giving out lemonade and doing surveys and there was, um, on the survey was the question, um, at what point in American history do you imagine that we want to get back to? Like, you know, that you imagine things were really great. And to a person down the line, as I asked people, um, almost all white men with like a sprinkling of white women who were kind of in there as well. Um, but almost all of them said before the new deal. So you're yeah. talking about a time before taxes, before a sense of, um, of a common good that Americans um, were responsible for, before there was, um, before actually also at the height of lynching, by the way, um, at the height of the Jim Crow South, um, where there, at, the, at the point when there were race riots across America, um, and we can call them race riots, you can call them massacres, which is more accurate, but literally almost every state in the Midwest and also throughout the South, there were, there were massacres of people of African descent, whole towns raised to the ground in that era. And that was the era when they were saying, yeah, this is when we were great. So, um, so that, that is one narrative. One narrative is that America was great um, when, white, when it was clear who ruled here, and that was obviously white men. Um, and there's a lot more that goes into that for sure. But the bottom line is really that. And then there's another narrative that really is a, 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 another competing meta-narrative, uh, meaning a larger narrative that guides the way that we decide how we're going to live together in the world. And that's the narrative that, that rises from the dirt. It's the narrative that rises from those who have been pushed down and oppressed by the laws that did mm -hmm. protect, entrench, um, and create um, white male dominance. And so that's that narrative of the, the striving to become a more perfect union, that, that union that actually then embraces more of the image of, images of God that live within it um, and cultivates the flourishing of more images of God and expects, therefore, more images of God to contribute mm -hmm. to the shaping and, and the future of this great nation. And so those are the two major competing narratives. Now, you also have competing narratives in the church. Um, you have one narrative in the church that says the gospel is really um, just about me and God. It's just Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sins. And if I pray this prayer, which is usually at the back of, back of, the, of a gold booklet, <laughs> you know, then I will be able to go to heaven. And that's like a huge narrative within um, particularly the evangelical church, the white evangelical church. Um, 
But there's another competing narrative, and that is the narrative of shalom, the narrative of the kingdom and the kingdom of God, that actually God's purpose on earth was to create shalom, which is peace, which is where y'all get your name, Peace Catalyst. It's really shalom catalyst. It's catalysts of people who will bring shalom into the world. And shalom is about much more than the absence of violence or the absence of conflict. Shalom is about the presence of reciprocity and integrity and truth-telling and flourishing for all, not just some. Um, in fact, central to the biblical concept of shalom is that you can't have peace over here if there is no peace over there. Peace over here is tied to the peace over there. So, um, so, the, so globally, when we talk globally and we talk about global diplomacy and Christian engagement in global diplomacy, therefore we cannot be um, for for the, the politics or the, the global politics of domination. It just can't be our policy or colonization. It just can't because colonization necessarily squashes the image of God. It doesn't allow it to flourish. Um, and whether or not we see that geopolitically or economically, that is the implication theologically, is that colonization um, or what we might call now um, uh, uh, global um, or economic domination, it squashes the capacity of the image of God to, to serve um, and to protect and to cultivate mm. the image of God within its, within its borders, wherever it is. Um, so, so the work that, that Freedom Road does um, is the work of narrative reconciliation. And we do that through our training and our consulting, um, through coaching leaders um, through developing forums that actually help bring people together to have the kinds of conversations that lead to common understanding hmm. and common commitment and common action. And then finally, through pilgrimage, which is really the way that we started um, by moving um, people through a story on the ground where it happened so that they might be changed by the experience of that story. Hmm. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing about Freedom Road. I would, I'm sure we could have an entire conversation um, because <laughs> so many things that you said there were very fascinating. Um, and just the concept of reconciling narratives, you know, not only maybe offering a counter narrative, but then how do you, where, where does your own story sit within that? So bringing right. it along. Exactly. Um, and yeah. that's what fortune did. That's what that my last book did. That was that was the attempt. Mm -hmm. So we, I mean, it, it really does kind of um, flow right into our conversation today. That's that's wonderful. great. That leads. That's a very nice transition. <laughs> so in in fortune, you go back into your own family's history, your ancestry and genealogy. What about that process in and of itself was impactful or significant for you? Wow. Well, I'll, honestly, I'll tell you, one of the things that was, it still strikes, and it really is kind of the thing that um, pushed me to write the book, was as I was finding out these details about my family and asking the deeper question of, okay, what do these details, um, 
what do they tell me about the larger world that they were living in? And then asking an even deeper question or maybe a higher question of what were the laws that were in place that were governing, kind of shaping their actions, you know, in the public square or even with their families. Um, when I began to ask those questions and then learn, you know, that those details then begged, um, uh, I really started realizing how much I don't know, like how much of our narratives have been either intentionally twisted, um, covered over so that things are completely left out of the narrative because boy, if people knew that, then they would know, you know, things aren't so great. Um, um, or absolutely changed, like, like literally just wrong, <laughs> just wrong. Um, and, and it's not, it's not only white folks that get stuff wrong. I mean, the reality is, is that historians have have written our histories from their perspective. So oftentimes, until recent years, we've had most of our histories have been written by people who are sitting in the halls of, of empire, sitting in the halls of Oxford or Cambridge or Harvard or Yale or Princeton, you know, like um, Georgetown, like basically, you know, the places that that are the the most elite on earth. They're the ones who are shaping how we understand where we've been and how we got here. And, and until recently, the people in those spaces have been basically largely white men. So when you have everybody, everyone comes to the world with a perspective. Everyone gains their perspective from the life they've lived. And the life they've lived has been absolutely shaped by the laws that they live within, the economic um, structures that they live within, the, the inheritances that they were able to get because of those laws and structures or not, um, whether that inheritance is comes in the form of money or education, um, you know, like whether somebody's mom went to Harvard, so then they get to go to Harvard, that kind of thing. So your social location shapes your worldview. So if all of our histories are being written by white men who basically come from the halls of empire, then of course the narratives that we will get will be from the perspective of those who established that empire, will be from the perspective of those who benefited from, the, from that empire, because they did. It is only recently, really literally in maybe the last maybe five to 10 years that we are beginning to see a decolonization of the story itself. We're beginning to see um, the, the, the strong arm, the strong hand of the academy lifted from the storytelling process as that process becomes democratized through engines like Ancestry.com through DNA research, through um, people doing their own genealogy. It's one of the reasons why I am such a huge fan of genealogy, that it in many ways is pretty subversive. And for me, it was subversive. It subverted the meta-narratives that where we were being fed by, by the halls of empire. And I went back to those primary documents that come up for you, you know, when you're searching for your ancestor. And I could see the contexts for myself. And it didn't take much to then go a few leagues deeper and ask the, the questions, okay, what were the laws that were governing the time? What was happening in this, in this geological or geographical space rather, um, you know, at the time um, that my ancestors might've been responding to. And that then, that um, seeds the ground for history to rise from the soil, from the ground up. And it often challenges 
the histories that are brought to us from on high, that have agendas that are trying to move us in one way or the other politically, or simply just don't have the whole story because they haven't asked the people on the ground. Mm -hmm. So I was surprised when I did my ancestry, um, when we came across Fortune Game McGee, who is the namesake of the book, Fortune. And um, she lived, she was born in 1687 in the colony of Maryland. And um, her body, because her mother was an Ulster Scott woman, who had an affair with a Senegalese man who was an enslaved man whose name was Sambo Gam became Sambo game. And his name was Sambo from Senegal. It was a Wolof name. It means second son. Hmm. Wow. Does that not tell you something about his story? Like right there, his name is telling you part of his story, but we, our, our historians would probably not catch that because they don't research the, 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 the origins of the names. And we would think that Sambo was this denigrated name that came about in the Jim Crow era. And it means, you know, um, um, like a step and fetch it kind of a um, black man who is raggedy. And it's kind of actually, he's actually the, the, the icon of Jim Crow, literally the, uh, that's Sambo, the icon of Jim Crow. Mm -hmm. And so, but that they did that in order to denigrate the dignity of black men because there were so many black men named Sambo because so many black men came from Senegal and mm -hmm. um, and Lower Mali and um, Upper Guinea, which is where that name comes from. So um, Fortune's father's name was Sambo and her mother and he was from Senegal and her mother's name was Maudlin and she was or Magdalene and she was from uh, the Ulster the Scott region or area of Belfast. And the laws, the very first race laws were created for exactly that kind of union to legislate and control that and, and control out that kind of union, a white woman with a black man. And so she's now the progeny, the mixed race progeny that the, that the planter class in 1664 in, um, uh, in Maryland was trying to legislate against. And so as a result, her body absorbed the wrath of those very first race laws. So that surprised me. I was like, oh my gosh, my ancestors were, not only were they there, but their situation was exactly the situation that created the first race laws. Now I have to go back in order to explain something to clarify. Um, in Virginia, the first race laws were created to deal with the opposite problem, but it was a perceived problem on the ground. It was the problem of white men raping their enslaved African women and thereby bearing their, you know, having them bear their children and then enslaving their children. This is what Jefferson did actually just like 200 years later in Virginia, ironically. So in, in, in 1660, we'll go back 1630, a, a young woman named um, Elizabeth Key was born in Virginia and she was the daughter of Thomas Key, um, a legislator in the house of Burgesses. And they forced him to recognize her as his daughter. And also to get her baptized, because that's kind of what they did around that time. So she was baptized. Around 1650, she got hip. She said, wait a minute. English common law says that a, an English citizen cannot be um, enslaved. And my dad is an English citizen. And according to English law, citizenship is passed 
through the line of the father. Therefore, I am an English citizen, and I should not be able to be enslaved. Oh, and by the way, English, English law says you can't enslave another Christian. And I was baptized. I'm a Christian. So I really should not be able to be enslaved. So she took her case to court and won. She won. And then a bunch of other people won after her. And then the House of Burgesses, the, the legislature, who were the planter class, started seeing their free labor exiting from their, from their plantations and they legislated this first race law ever, which said citizenship shall now come through the line of the mother, not the father. And that would allow them the ability to continue to rape their enslaved African women and mm. who would then bear their children. And they added in perpetuity. So in other words, if your lineage traces back to an African woman, that African woman is not a citizen. Therefore, she is able to be enslaved and all of her descendants for a thousand years up to a thousand generations and more in perpetuity shall be able to be enslaved because they are also not citizens because citizenship passes through the line of the mother. That's what they did. Was that not brilliant in terms of, you know, preserving their bottom line. That's what they did. They preserved their profit. So right. two years later in Maryland, they said, you know, we have a problem too, but it was the exact opposite problem. It was white women, indentured servants, falling in love and marrying enslaved black men that they were working right alongside on their plantations and having their children. And so these mixed race kids were posing a threat to the caste system that had been developing. Um, and in order to deal with this, and also in order to soothe their own egos that were being threatened by these white women choosing enslaved black men instead of them, <laughs> they, they legislated this, the second race law ever um, on, in the colonies. And this is the first race law in Maryland. Um, says, if a white woman were to marry an enslaved black man and have his children, she would become enslaved to her husband's master until the death of her husband and her children would be enslaved in perpetuity forever. So that, that was the first race law in Maryland. And only about 20 years later, um, fortune was born. Now there were changes to the law in the meantime, but they kind of begged off of the, we're going to enslave white women thing. And instead, by the time Fortune is hauled into court in 1705, the law has now shaken out to read that um, if a, an indentured white woman um, has an affair um, or gets married to an enslaved black man and has the children, she will be indentured for seven years. Um, but the child will be indentured for 21 to 31 years depending on the marriage status of this union. If they are married, it'll be 21 years. If, it'll, if they are not married, it'll be 31 years. So Fortune was, um, was ruled to be indentured until 31. And two of her successive generations were also indentured because of consecutive, um, more and more heinous race laws 
that now had to do with the race of the father. If the, if the later it said, if the father is white, then they'll be indentured for 21 years. If the father is black, they'll be indentured for 31 years. Her, her children were indentured for 21 years, which is an indicator that she was likely raped by a white man. Both two successive generations were raped by white men. And I did a little DNA sleuthing um, in my own matches and found the surnames of the indenturing families in my own DNA. Mm -hmm. So it is likely that they were raped by their indenturers, which meant they were breeding. They were breeding free labor as early as this early, early, early 1700s. Now that is something you don't hear. That, that surprised me. Really, I gasped. I was like, wait a minute, what? Um, and it wasn't anywhere. It was nowhere. That, that is that narrative is very, very rare to be found. But I did find a book that um, from a woman named Sharon Block um, on rape and sexual politics in the, in the colonial era. And she talked about the reality that this actually was very common. But you don't normally hear about breeding you know, in breeding slaves until after the close of the transatlantic slave trade in 1808. When Virginia, ironically, the first colony, began to put together breeding farms, they literally transferred many of their tobacco farms into slave farms in order to feed the South with more and more enslaved people because they could no longer get them directly from Africa. So they capitalized they capitalized on the moment mm -hmm. and slavery exploded in America. My goodness. Wow. wow. And it's global and it's global. That was the second thing that surprised me. And I think that your audience will appreciate this, that, that the slave trade was a global trade. It literally, the laws that established whether or not it was even legal was laws passed down by popes that were then embedded into national laws that, and this is the, 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 um, the nature of colonization is that you impose your laws, you impose your, your understandings of the world on the other. So those laws were imposed on nations throughout the continent of Africa. Um, the Pope in, in 1453 um, made an edict called Romanus Pontifex and said, if an explorer goes somewhere in the world and sees that there are no Christians there or that they're uncivilized, whatever that means, um, then they have the right to claim that land for the throne and to enslave its people. It's that edict that gave us the world as we know it today. That gave us every colonized nation in Africa, all of South America, Central America, North America, Hong Kong, Thailand, Vietnam, Australia, Guineas, like the West Western um, Guinea, um, Western Papua or Papua New Guinea and Western Papua New Guinea. It gives us um, Hawaii. It gives us the whole world as we know it today. And that global nature then makes or the global nature of the slave trade and colonization. Um, what you find is you find the same modus operandi operating on various continents. So just like Maryland and Virginia created those first race laws to embed a racial hierarchy that benefited white men, particularly European white men, um, you'll find the same kinds of laws, different structures, but same kinds of laws in Brazil and 
Puerto Rico, um, in throughout the Caribbean, in all of the colonized African nations, um, you'll find those same hierarchies even at work right now in Australia. Mm-hmm. Right now, they have a category mm-hmm. on their on their um, census that says black, but it doesn't mean. Of course, African-American or black, in fact, there doesn't need to be any connection at all with Africa to be named black in Australia. Usually it means Aboriginal (laughs) Mm -hmm. or South, South Islander, South Sea Islander. So, but what does it really mean? It means back, bottom. It means one created to uphold the economic flourishing of Europeans. That's what it means around the world, because that's the global system that developed along with the, the, the global slave trade. My goodness. I mean, I'm absolutely blown away with the level of research and just the incredible journey this took you on, not only looking into your own family history, but an entire context, a global context. Um, yes. And so I, I would be curious what you would, you know, cause we're talking about looking back and, you know, you assert that it's, it's crucial for us to, to look back into our history in order to heal and move forward individually, collectively. So I guess there are two parts to this question. One is that one is how, how do we do this? Well, I guess, how do we remember well? And then maybe a second part would, would be how, how does that contribute to our ability to collectively heal and um, reconcile our narratives together. And is that possible? That's so good. That's such a great question. Yes, it is possible. And I want to just, I want to highlight a word that you used, remember. In the book, I actually talk about remembering. Um, The reality that when we remember, when we actually seek the truth and listen to the truth, soak in it, and then when we tell the truth, we are doing the work of remembering our memory. Um, In other words, bringing the members of our memory, the the members of our story back together, reuniting them. Um, And that is the work of colonization, isn't it? It is, it's the work of of shattering. It's the work of separating, the work of separating people from each other, families from each other, um, stories, people from their own stories and their histories. Um, it is the work of, of, of disconnection, which is the exact opposite of Shalom, by the way. Shalom is really all about um, recognizing and, and moving toward the intended radical connection that God created us for. So colonization shatters us. That work of remembering, it actually is the work of peace. It is, mm-hmm. it is the work of bringing peace in the world. So how do we do it? We do it through the process of sitting at the feet of those to whom the laws squashed, right? The, to whom the laws were created to control and confine and, um, and to suppress. It mm-hmm. is the work of loosing their tongues. You know, honestly, I, I did a scripture study of Acts 2 um, last year with our, um, with, with our community here at Freedom Road. We had a, um, a webinar series that actually was a, an amazing Bible study over, I think we did eight weeks of Bible study. And it was the, and the kind of study, it was actually called Decolonizing the Bible. And so we just did eight Bible studies over eight weeks um, 
And the whole point of it was to decolonize our read of it. And so I went deep into Acts 2 and Mm. I found that, oh my gosh, something in that narrative I never saw before. When you, when you switch the question, when you ask a different, different question, you, you see different things. So I asked the question, what was the political context within which Acts 2 happened? And, and I said, okay, what was this political significance of the reality that, you know, all of a sudden everybody's speaking in tongues and, and what is this? It doesn't, it doesn't say actually that they're speaking in an angelic language. In fact, it says specifically and explicitly they are speaking in each other's languages, the languages of the people who are present. And they are very specific about who is present. And all of the nations who are present are all colonized nations. They're all colonized by Rome. Every single one of the nations of the, of the people present were colonized people. And when you do the deeper work, you find that the trade, there was one trade language in the Roman Empire that everybody was forced to speak, and that was Greek. So here on the in the first chapter, sorry, second chapter of Acts, the first act of the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes to earth, is to decolonize language. Mm. Wow. <laughs> to loose the tongues of the suppressed ones. Wow. What? (laughs) What? So if that is the work of the Holy Spirit on earth, then it must be our work in the church. So the, the first, the first thing we must do is to bow to the tongues, to the narratives that rise from the suppressed ones, from the ones whose narratives have been covered over, erased, muffled, suppressed. And that you can do in many different ways. I mean, you can start easy just by watching movies and documentaries that were created by the people, by the people groups that have been suppressed. Listen to what they're saying about their own history um, and then move on to books to books written by them about their histories. Fortune is a great start. And then you might move to novels as well. If, if you're one that is really about story, great storytelling, novels get under the, under the hood, under the surface of what was going on. And, and they use imagination to help us to feel it as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, so re- wa- reading novels um, and, and also, again, watching films by the people. Um, and then you go to the place where it happened. You know, you actually do a pilgrimage to that place and listen to the people. Go to museums that were created by the people, not just your national museums that were created by, um, you know, curators who are who come from the halls of empire. They will have a particular narrative, but the work of remembering is the work of reconciling, bringing back together your understanding with the understanding of those on the ground, on the underside of of empire. And so Mm -hmm. it really does look like lifting up the narratives and listening, sitting at the feet of of those to whom it happened and their their descendants who can tell the story and or, last case, um, experts that rise from that community, people who have actually been trained in history and everything that rise from that community. Um, And after that, the work, after you know, after you have heard, after you have walked and you understand in your body what happened, then comes the work of repair, the work of reparation, the work of 
asking what David asked of the Gibeonites in 2 Samuel 21, 1 through 14. What do you say we must do in order for things to be made well with you? And again, bowing to the image of God in the other, who be, what it means to be made in the image of God on the first page of the Bible is that we are created to exercise dominion. And isn't that like the, the principal sin of colonization, the primary sin of racial hierarchy, gender hierarchy, all of these things, all of the, the isms, isn't that the primary sin is that it limits the capacity of some of many actually to exercise dominion in the world by creating these hierarchies of human belonging. Mm. So the work of, of, of repair requires repentance from the ways we have done things, repentance from the, the way of domination. And David repented from that. David saw that Saul had tried to commit genocide against the, the Gibeonites. And so instead of trying to dominate them, even with his solution, you know, saying, you know, we'll figure this out and we'll get back to you. We'll come up with a solution for you. Instead, recognizing the image of God in the Gibeonites and doing as he did, which is to say, How, what do you say we must do for things to be made well with you? And you know what David does? He does it. They say it, and he does it. No questions asked. That's what it looks like to honor the image of God in the other. Mm. And that that work can take us a long way. There's much to be repented of. And, and particularly for, for people of African descent, again, a global issue. This is not just an American issue. It was a global slave trade. Um, and all of Europe became filthy rich and really truly filthy rich because of it. And America became the nation that it is today because of the free labor that it exacted, it, it ex extracted from people of African descent for two, 256 years. And then the suppression of our flourishing during Jim Crow. And then the imprisonment of our men in particular and women now through mass incarceration over the next 60 years. So people of African descent are the only ones in American history that have never received federal reparations of any form. You realize that? Wow. Everybody else has gotten reparations. Everybody, everybody, <laughs> but not people of African descent. And you, you have to ask, why is that okay? Mm. Why is that okay? Mm. How is that okay? Mm -hmm. It's not. Biblically, it's not okay. How do you think that we're going to ever be well as a nation if we do not repair what, what we broke? Mm -hmm. We can't be well. So if we want to be well as a nation, we must engage the processes of truth-seeking, truth-listening, truth-telling, and reparation. And then finally, we talk in the last chapter of the book about the process, really the process of healing that requires forgiveness 
some measure, some kind, some level of forgiveness of the things that can't be repaired. Forgiveness for those communities that were destroyed and will not come back. For the family members that were killed and will not be resurrected. Forgiveness means to release, release um, the debt that is owed mm-hmm. from the debtor. But I don't, I would contend that the, the process for those who are, who have been oppressed, we release for our own sake, not for the sake of the oppressor. We release so that we can get what we need because the oppressor simply doesn't have, they don't have it. They don't have what they can't give the communities. For example, the community of Elmwood where my great grandfather owned a block of homes in Philadelphia that was claimed by eminent domain and he was paid pennies on the dollar and he died later that year. We believe of a broken heart. Mm. That community is not coming back. Mm. My grandfather is not coming back. So on one level, I have to forgive. I have to release it. Otherwise, I will go to my grave demanding something that can't be restored. Mm-hmm. But what I can do is I can release it and then I can go to God and I can say, God, you know, you know the debt. You know the yearning of my soul for that community that my great-grandfather built, for that community that he built because he knew we needed this level of community. And I can ask God, God, you move the mountains. You bring the cattle on a thousand hills. You do it. You fill our need, the need that was taken away, swiped by evil. And God can do it. God, it is God's pleasure to do it. So forgiveness is a part of the equation of healing and and there's more to that as well. But um, ultimately, the goal is the beloved community, right? Ultimately, the goal is, is shalom. It is peace. Um, and not peace at the expense of the oppressed, but rather peace for all. Amen. Wow. Oh, there's so much there that I think we can glean and learn from you and what you're sharing. And I think, um, yeah, this concept of repentance, it's like, it's a turning away from what we've been doing, right? And it's, yeah. and it's doing a 180. And what yes. does that look like? And I love what you're sharing about um, this concept of sitting before those who have gone through these experiences yes. and really listening and really understanding and learning and um, yeah, I'm just, I'm so humbled and inspired by your work and I've read Fortune and I've, it really personally impacted me and I'm really wow. looking, wanting to look into my own genealogy because it's like, I understand that my ancestors did contribute to this, right? These mm-hmm. mass injustices, but it's like, mm-hmm. I don't know how. And I feel like that's an important thing to learn for myself. In this journey of it yeah. really is. And, and let me just say that there's for people in European bodies on American soil, there's usually one of two ways that your ancestors got here. Either they were fleeing oppression of their own, 
in the, on European lands, or they were fleeing poverty. One of two ways they usually got here, and that's it. And depending on when they came, whether they came in the 1600s or the 1900s, that's what will determine how you can understand their place in this in this racial construct and schema, because it all changed. It morphed again and again and again over that time. But either they were people who were the people granted the land in the very beginning and pretty much all of the laws pretty much the whole time have been established in order to protect their bottom lines or they came as indentured servants and they were first oppressed and then worked their way up into quote white status and then they benefited from those laws and oftentimes helped to entrench them in order to protect their own status, right? So the question, and then there were those few, like, you know, John Brown, um, um, who, who were actually allies or accomplices with people, oppressed peoples in the dismantling of those hierarchies, right? So, um, what would it look like or what does it take then for people of European descent to enter into this process? It, it really, you have to locate when did your ancestors come and in what way did they engage in this hierarchy, in this hierarchical schema of belonging here? Mm-hmm. And did they benefit? Did they establish it or did they fight it? You really don't know until you look. And mm-hmm. when you look, what you find can actually inform you for your walks forward. It doesn't need to paralyze you in shame. It doesn't need to actually lift you and make you feel like, okay, we're good because they fought. We're not good. Yes, they fought. That's wonderful. Now it's your turn to pick up the baton. So the real question is, how do you walk forward from your ancestral heritage? Wow. That's, yeah, that's so good. That's so powerful because I, yeah, I love this concept of understanding history so that we can place ourselves in our current context too yes. and understand what role are we playing today, which is yes. something you talk about in your book too. Exactly. It's so powerful. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. And we're all we're all on this journey together. So I think mm-hmm. um, thank you for everything that you've yeah, given us today and shared with us. Um, is there anything that you'd want to kind of leave our audience with as we close um, or something sure. you'd like to highlight? That, yeah. You know, I would, I would love to, sorry for that. I, <laughs> there's a little bit of a delay. Um, I would love yeah. to um, close with the last page. What's written on the last page. Cause everybody, sometimes people will ask, you know, what do you hope to accomplish from fortune? And here's, here's what I hope to accomplish, especially in light of the current day, um, conversation around replacement theory and things like that. You know, the, the, the insidiousness of that theory is the question of intent, whether people are intending, they're conspiring to replace people of European descent, um, in America in order to subvert white power, you know, but Benjamin Franklin in 1740s wrote to the crown saying that people of European descent are quickly around the world. He was one of the first demographers ever around the world becoming a minority. And he actually, he said, we need to, we need to, um, the crown should um, set aside America 
as a white nation. This was Ben Franklin as a white nation. And the only ones who should be able to be seen as white here should be the English because we discovered this land. The Germans should not be seen as white. In fact, he said they will muddy the race. <laughs> Literally, this is what Benjamin oh Franklin said, right? So this is, wow. we go back, the founders actually did have this in mind. But the question of intent now in terms of the, the demographic shift is happening. But it's not one where it's intentional. It mm-hmm. is simply happening. And it's mm-hmm. happening because of the powers of, of the universe, people are just not having as many kids. I mean, it's just, just that simple. Yeah. Now, replacement theory pl- says that this is happening because of some, um, some, uh, some archaic plot to take over and, and, to, and to dominate white people. Mm. But what if it's not? What if it's God? What if God is mm. actually just moving as God promised that God would in order to create the beloved community, that community that has no dominant people group. Mm-hmm. What if God is actually doing wow. an equalizing work in the world? Here's what the last page of my book reads. There are two paths set before the oppressed. One path leads to rage, compounded pain, sickness, and death. The other leads to the beloved community. On that road, there is truth-seeking, truth-listening, and truth-telling. There is reparation and equity, and there is mercy, release. For the sake of my body and soul, and the bodies and souls of my family's descendants to the tenth generation from me, I choose the beloved community. And for readers in European bodies, you also have a choice. You can continue your war for supremacy against the image of God on earth. You can resist God's beloved community, resist truth, resist equity, resist justice, resist mercy. You can try to maintain your space at the top of a crumbling racial hierarchy. You won't be there long. You are already in the global minority. And within one generation, you will be in the minority in the United States as well. And when that day comes... You can wage war or you can lean into truth, lean into repentance and repair and allow yourselves to be released, forgiven. Only then can we find a new way of being together in the world. And I can almost hear my seventh grade grandmother, Fortune Game McGree, who walked this land 10 generations ago and absorbed the wrath of its first race, gender, and citizenship laws into her traumatized body. And in my mind's ear, I hear her whisper, Yes, child, yes. Thank you so much, Lisa. This has been such a joy and a privilege to learn from you. Thank you. Thank you. Wow, that was amazing. I feel like we just got to kind of soak up what Lisa (laughs) shared with us and, um, 
all the incredible knowledge and, um, you know, work that she's put into unpacking this journey. Um, And I love what she was saying about, you know, building the beloved community and this concept of shalom and what does it look like to actually create that in our context today? Um, And I think it's, it's such a unique, like, journey, it seems to me, to to go back and, and retrace like ancestry and genealogy because um yeah I think that's something we don't always think about or value as much in our current culture. Um at least not in our generation. <laughs> Ali, I don't know what you think um about that. But yeah, I, I was really inspired and I think moved by what she was saying about listening to those voices like sitting at the feet of people who've gone through, um, you know, these horrible, like, atrocities and abuses of, of humanity, of, of image bearers of God, and, Mm. um, like, sitting at their feet and just listening and learning. I think that, to me, seems like the very necessary first step for those of us who, you know, come from the other side of privilege and, um, the perpetrators of that abuse. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that her, her assertion that we, we are who we are because of, or, you know, that we all come from a certain context and that there is such value when we're talking about reconciling competing narratives in our country and, and even globally to, um, to look back into, you know, not even our own areas, history, our own regions history, but our own specific family history, um, as a mirror of, or, or as, you know, one small, fraction of what was going on at the time. And I just, I, I mean, I guess where I'm going with this is I, as she was talking about what it was like to learn uh, about um, fortune and about um, ju- just her own family, there was so, she was able to see a picture of what was going on, you know, in an entire region. And, um, even zooming out farther than that, you know, she, she wasn't just, it it wasn't like this personal journey to discover who she was, but it was like, what, what was happening at that time. And I just think that that's so fascinating, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I I guess I was really, really encouraged or um, challenged, maybe challenged by that. Mm because she she was definitely on a quest for a purpose and um yeah so and I, and I just think her, as as she was sharing in the beginning about Freedom Road um and what she's doing there I just I so see the connection between that work and the personal work that she was doing um and yeah I wonder like, I, I wonder what that would look like. Like, I wonder what the action step is, you know, for me um, and for, for us, for the, for the audience. I, I wonder. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. 
That's such a good point because I feel like, uh, yeah, I feel like for me, I've been curious about this already, like wanting to look into the like, yeah, my like European ancestry in the U.S. and what roles they did play in all of that history. And um, I love what Lisa was sharing about, you know, it's they could have played so many different roles, but like it's not about getting stuck or like, you know, closely attaching ourselves to whatever roles they were playing in their context, but it's more so that we can, like you were saying, then reflect on, well, what is my current context and like what role do I play in that? And what is going on today that, um, you know, could be still perpetuating these, you know, hierarchies of belonging, like she's talking about. Um, And how can I like play a positive role that works against that and towards towards the beloved community? Um, So, yeah, I think it is something to really important to ask ourselves and you know whatever that journey looks like I mean maybe it's going to ancestry.com and like looking at history but maybe it's maybe you're not there yet maybe you're just wanting to read more and you know Lisa gave some great tips about you know where to start um with listening to those who've you know um been in the most marginalized um groups of society and then to go from there and read books and continue learning so I think it's yeah like that seems to be the key is to like keep learning and keep um pushing ourselves to ask questions and and be uncomfortable I mean a lot of these things that come up are gonna feel really uncomfortable and might even feel like threatening to some degree it might trigger something for those of us who are white, who, you know, have European descent in America, um, you might be triggered by some things and, and feel defensive. And I think it's, that's okay. But I think we have to be willing to push past that and understand why am I feeling that way? Um, and um, to push past that, to keep learning and listening and, and going deeper um, with God. And I think we have to do this in the context of you know, our relationship with Christ, because I don't think we can really, um, well, it's my personal opinion, but I think it would be really challenging yeah. to as deep as is necessary to get to this place of like shalom and, and true peacemaking um, without that relationship. But yeah. 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 I, I definitely... I definitely see that. I mean, I think it, it requires a, a greater um, vision of ourselves, you know, than um, we are, we are more than just a tat, more than members of a family or, you know, we are, we are that certainly, you know, um, we come from mm-hmm. somewhere and, you know, we can't just completely disconnect from that, but it, yeah, it, it requires a greater vision of who we are, who God is perhaps, um, and quite a bit of humility, depending on what, you know, side of history we're on, not to paint with broad strokes, you know, but, um, but yeah, it, right. It, you're, you're absolutely right there. It, it would require more, probably more courage um, and grace for some, perhaps. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I'm curious 
as she was she was talking about at the latter part of the book, um, she was discussing, you know, reparations and the um, deep need for for forgiveness within the beloved community. How did that how did that hit you? How did that sit with you? Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought like, yeah, it's a great question. Because I think it's quite, it's just awful when you think about the history and then you like to hear her say like there have been no federal reparations for people of African descent in the U.S. And that's horrible. <laughs> like yeah. to me, when you when you look at the larger context, like why is that? You know, and um, I think as we're talking about like forgiveness, and you know, Lisa talked about how that forgiveness on the side of the person who's been oppressed is more about like freeing them from anger and hatred and whatever. Um, But I think it also obviously plays a crucial role in like this larger sort of building the beloved community or reconciliation, because I think, um, Mm -hmm. well, I was trying, I was actually reflecting on like, if we look at the life of Jesus, like what, what does it look like when he like confronts somebody about their need to repent? And like, does he, I think he always shows love and like sees that person and calls them by name even before they repent. And I think that could be the thing that like, actually, like I, I always think of Zacchaeus cause I'm like, you know, he was a tax collector and, but Jesus first like called him by name. Right. And he, I'm coming over to your house for dinner. Mm -hmm. And that was what prompted Zacchaeus to repent and to say, I'm going to pay back four times what I took um, from people. So Mm. I don't know if, you know, that can be applied at like this kind of level, but it does make me, yeah, just wonder about that. What can that reconciliation process look like? Like, can there be forgiveness before repentance or does there have to be repentance first in order for there to be forgiveness or do they work together simultaneously like um maybe it's all of the above but um yeah I think that's really important to to ask ourselves what does it look like in today's world what does it look like to repent Mm -hmm. from this troubled history um and troubled times today. What does it look like to do a 180 so that we can become people who, yeah, work, bring kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, bring love of God um, on earth as it is in heaven. So, yeah. And I think, you know, with that, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't have a ton to add to that because you said it so well. I think the only thing that's going through my mind is, you know, what does it look like to repair, to reconcile individually, you know, relationally, um, Mm -hmm. and also collectively, because I think there can be a certain, yeah, I, maybe perhaps it feels easier to kind of wash our hands and say, well, you know, the government, nothing's happened on a federal level. Um, I I can't, I don't really have any control over that other than 
being engaged in advocacy work and, you know, but mm-hmm. yeah, other than that, you know, it, it might feel like, well, things are a bit out of my hands. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would, I would posit that there is probably something we can be involved in even on that level. But, but even so, I think individually, like you're, yeah, like, cause you're right. This isn't something that happened in the past before we were here, something that, you know, maybe even my ancestors weren't involved. Like maybe, you know, that's going through some people's minds, but, but what's happening now, you know? And I think, yeah, reparations can be made now for, for injustice happening right now, you know? So yeah. anyways, yeah. So I think that's, that is such an important question to be asking. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's such a good point. That's so great, Ali. Yeah. The injustice is occurring today and how do we repent and turn from that today? Um, that's so good. It was very, very, very amazing to hear from her and to especially fun to learn about her connection with Peace Catalyst. I had known about the connection as you had too, but I, I, I hadn't really heard well, I have, of course, I've never spoken to her before now, so I hadn't heard her um, perspective on Rick Love, um, our founder, and um, her relationship with him. So that was that was very neat to to learn about. Yeah, yeah, that was so cool to learn that history and think that like we get to walk in the path that they've paved for us is um, incredible. Mm-hmm.